Welcome to How to Reach the West Again, a podcast that aims to inspire and empower a fresh missionary encounter with Western culture. I'm your host, Brandon O'Brien. This season has been all about cities. What are they? What does the Bible say about them? What does it mean to love them? What are the unique challenges and opportunities presented by city ministry? This is the final episode of season two. I hope you've enjoyed these conversations as much as I have. We're ending today with a strong, clear, compelling vision for citywide transdenominational networks committed to church planting and renewal. I'm joined today by Neil Powell, director for the London Project. He shares the story of a work he was part of in another city in the UK, Birmingham, and the origins and impact of the citywide network there. He shares with us his vision for a similar movement in the great city of London. I trust you'll be encouraged and inspired by our conversation. So let's start back with your experience in Birmingham. Um, your, your book, uh, Together for the City, um, sort of a record of your experience through the process of transdenominational citywide church planting in Birmingham. Can you tell us a little about that initiative, Birmingham 2020, and um, kind of the vision for it and, and how it played out? So we moved, my wife and I, to Birmingham to work with college students. And out of that, we started a church with two friends in 1999. I describe myself as somewhat accidental, reluctant church planter. But we were seeing students come to faith on college campuses. We were seeing students really wanting to grow in their faith, but struggled to find a disciple-making, outward-looking, contemporary, Bible-centered gospel-driven church. All of the above was what we hoped to see happen by starting uh, a new church. So I did that with two friends uh, in 1999 and then started to connect with the world of city to city about five years later when one of the team, our bath, came to Birmingham on the fifth anniversary, the fifth birthday of the church. And he started to invite me to some of the um, city to city gatherings in New York where some of the DNA that we now think of as being in a book like Tim Keller's Center Church was being sort of discussed and um, we were being sort of given this vision for our cities and a sense of not just seeking to be a lone ranger or to plant one church, but to have this concept or this idea of seeing cities impacted by the gospel through movements of church planting. So Al was introducing me to some of that and through the writings and the talks of Tim Cameron about 2004. And by 2009, I think we reached the point of thinking, we should have a go at doing this ourselves in Birmingham. So I, we had planted, we planted a daughter church. We knew of other cities by name and reputation that also had a vision for planting for the city. And I approached one of those leaders in particular, a man called Jonathan Bell, who came from a different denomination from myself, but I think shared some of that passion and that same gospel DNA and shame vision for the city. And I just invited him for a cup of coffee to begin to talk about the possibility of working together, not necessarily to plant churches together. I think our theological differences, mm. he was a charismatic Christian. I came from a more reformed conservative background. I didn't think for a moment we could plant together, but I wondered whether we might be able to see more churches planted by working together than we could on our own. So working 
to see churches planted rather than working together to plant churches. So that might mean sort of training leaders, raising money together, praying for one another's endeavours and initiatives, mapping the city together and looking at the complexity and the challenges of a large, diverse city like Birmingham. So 2009 was when we had that cup of coffee conversation and we began to think and to pray and to plan to do something together. And it really was just the two of us right at the outset. Um, but quickly, a few others joined and we thought, let's let's put a number to these things. Now, British people don't typically do that sort of thing, but we thought what is to, to really be clear what this was going to be, what it would take and what we were trying to do, let's put some numbers to it. So we called it 2020 Birmingham and our real vision was to see 20 new churches planted in the city in the space of 10 years. So 20 churches within by the year 2020. Yeah. Sounds like Jonathan was fairly receptive to the vision. How do you, how do you find people respond in Birmingham in these early years to the idea of collaboration? Are people immediately enthusiastic? Are they reluctant, suspicious? What, what, what kind of response did you receive early on? Every kind of response. <laughs> um, so yes, so there, there were some who were nervous about working outside of your own tribe, working with churches that were, quote, not like us. So there were certainly some who, who were wrestling with the question of who can you work with? If you want to be faithful to your understanding of the gospel, how generous can collaboration be? That was the Everyone was wrestling with that question in one, in one form or another. But there were some who were nervous about being too broad, too generous, and losing the gospel somewhere and some distinctiveness somewhere with working with certain kinds of churches. And there were, there were others who were really enthusiastic but still couldn't see, how does this actually work in practice? Because it's not really been tried. I think everyone recognised that would... Maybe the only time these kind of churches would ever talk to each other was previously when someone like Billy Graham mm. was coming to the UK. And all of a sudden, the church in the city, gospel churches within a city would say, hey, we need to come together. But other than that occasional initiative, like a Billy Graham mission week or something like that, these churches, we, we just didn't talk. We didn't try to work together. So who can you work with? How closely do you need to agree on all of your secondary distinctives. That's where it was helpful to say to people, we're not going to try and plant churches together. Mm. We've got different ecclesiologies. We've got different pneumatologies, uh, yeah. views of the work of the Spirit, or we have different views of the Lord's Supper and baptism. You can't yeah. bring people from a wide variety of theological traditions and just hope that they can start a church. So we weren't trying to do that, but we thought we could gather the leaders from church plants across the city and speak meaningfully into one another's situations through peer-to-peer -peer relationships, training and coaching, prayer, raising money together, recruiting people into the city. And that seemed to be the sweet spot. That seemed to be the place where people were most ready. And so you started Initial Conversation 20, uh, 2009. I think your book came out in 2018 or 19. Yeah. So tell me about the, the the progress in that decade. Did you hit your 20 church goal or, uh, yeah, how did, how did it pan out? 
We did. We did hit the 20, literally just as COVID mm. really began to impact our city, which was extraordinary in itself. I think um, the, the lovely thing was the surprising way in which we found church planters in our city by coming together under, a, a, an, under this banner, 2020 Birmingham, and beginning to promote the idea through a website, through an annual conference, that Birmingham was a place where if you came to plant a church, there were others who were ready to walk alongside you. Not to tell you how to do it, but to try to encourage you in your endeavours, who would look to serve you by saying, is there any way in which we can help you with what God has called you to do in this city? And what we found was people began to sort of be drawn to that vision. And some even decided to plant in Birmingham rather than elsewhere because they were looking for that degree of support. I think it's Ed Stetzer in the book Viral Churches that makes the case that if someone is part of both a national network denomination something and also a local collaborative endeavor the chances of that church plant really growing and becoming a healthy gospel church increases by about 125 percent oh wow so it's a very significant thing to have the support of your denomination resourcing finances training but then also to have a peer group in your city who know the city and will pray and stand alongside you and encourage you in in what you're doing. Can you uh, give us a couple of like really concrete examples of what is it that a person in a city like Birmingham who has the support of a denomination and possibly a sending agency, what additional kind of value add, for lack of a better word, does that that local network provide for them? I'll give you a couple of examples. One was simply... (laughs) How regularly we would meet. So if you were planting in Birmingham and you were connecting through 2020 Birmingham, if you were doing something like, as a result of that, city-to-city incubator in Birmingham, and then also gathering with the planters in the city for our monthly gathering, that would mean if you were new to the city and starting a church, you were just two weeks away from meeting with fellow planters within the city. So as you wrestled with particular challenges of maybe people coming to your church that you weren't sure um, as you started a plant where they would fit, whether they this was the right church for them or whether you ought to encourage them to consider going somewhere else. You just wanted some help with particular people, just trying to assess are they a good fit for us? Or if you your wife was looking or your spouse was looking for support in the city, even just trying to find schools for the kids, or whether you were looking to raise some money for church planting and needed some invitations sent out to potential donors and supporters to consider you. We helped an Ethiopian taxi driver who was starting a church. We helped him to find a building. He really was struggling to find anyone who would let him use the building because he didn't really have any sort of letters of commendation. He didn't really have a denomination here in the UK. He could talk about his involvement back in Ethiopia, but he'd come to the UK, he was working in the city, he felt the call to plant a church, and what we were able to do is to talk to the to the bishop, the Bishop of Birmingham, and say, look, we really know this guy, he's part of what we're doing in the city. Would you trust us in it, in, in a sense? to help us secure a building, and we were able to do that for him. We helped a Romanian who found us on the website, actually the 2020 Birmingham website. We helped him by literally giving uh, a place for him and his wife to live 
for that one of the other church planters said, come and live with us for the three, first three months that you're in, you're in the city. So lots of small, significant ways right. in which we could love each other and encourage the good and help each other um, in our endeavors. How would you describe the sort of key obstacles in your in trying to get that sort of um, uh, diverse network of people collaborating together? If someone is listening and thinking, I want to do something like this in my city, what kinds of uh, initial challenges might they anticipate? It takes time to get to know people. And you probably therefore need one or two who will lead the initiative. Ideally, I think it ought to be led by at least two or maybe a third who come from different denominations, Mm. who have experience in planting and have been in the city for a time. They generally have the sort of the knowledge of the city. And if they come from different denominations, then when someone arrives saying, I've come to plant here, if Jonathan and I, from our different theological traditions, looked at this person met with them a couple of times, thought, yeah, we we think this is someone that we could and should help to plant because we believe they're going to plant a gospel church Mm. that will enable others to hear and respond to the message of Jesus. Um, Then having one or two leaders who are willing to take that responsibility for who can even be part of it, because it's not obvious from the get-go if someone wants to plant a church in a city they're necessarily going to plant a, a gospel church. So I think that is the key, is that a couple of people who can serve in that role, who are trusted, respect each other, aren't going to try and dominate, but nevertheless are going to try and guard and protect gospel DNA for this movement. And I think Jonathan and I worked well together in that regard. And then I think clarity around what what you're trying to do. So we kept saying to church planters, for example, we're not trying to plant a church for you. We cannot be that for you. So we had to be clear with the expectations. So we might be able to help you raise some, for example, money, but we are we don't have money to give you to plant a church. And sometimes planters, I think, hoped and expected more of this local collaborative endeavor than we could deliver. They almost wanted us to function as their denomination, if you like. And so we had to have real clarity around that when we first began to meet with them. So they didn't end up being disappointed, thinking, oh, I thought, you know, you were going to do so much more for me than we realistically could. So we had a very limited um, idea as to how much time and resources we could put into this thing as pastors and planters. And therefore, we said to leaders, we will help you through offering training through City to City Incubator. We can link you with a coach. We may be able to connect you with a few donors or foundations or others who might be interested, churches who might be interested in sponsoring a church plant in the city. And we can certainly pray and want to stand alongside you in your endeavours. And that seemed to be an agreed, shared upon set of expectations that people found yeah that that could be super helpful i would also say support for you and your spouse as well in terms of walking this line but clarity as to what we were offering over against what their own denomination may be offering was sometimes required some care and some skill in resolving 
you've recently moved from Birmingham to London. Um, tell me what prompted that move and what you hope to see happen now in your work with the London project. Yeah. Um, well, as I've said so far in this conversation, the, the 2020 thing was a sidebar in lots of ways. My main day-to-day -day work was serving a local church as a, as a preaching pastor, maybe planting one or two of our own daughter churches from time to time. But the 2020 Birmingham was 10 to 15% of my time. That maybe works in a city of 1.1 million, which is Birmingham in the UK. London is a city of 9 million and rising. So it's a super size city. It's a global city. It's incredibly diverse and complex. Mm. The idea of something like a 2020 Birmingham, but for a city like that, the scale, the size, the complexity of the city, I think, meant that the only way we might see this happen in London is if you staffed it. It would need two or three, four people who could give it most of their time or be the first thought each day. How do we work with other churches, denominations, networks within the city? And I was asked and invited to consider leaving the role of being a local church leader and just doing some of this on the side to actually it being my main thing. And that's what the London Project, which is our expression of a collaborative endeavour for London, that's really what started back in about 2020 was me leaving leadership of a local church to working almost exclusively on this big idea of collaboration between churches, networks, denominations within a large global city. Find that the, the way local pastors and other leaders respond to the idea of collaboration to be similar here as in Birmingham or different? Is there more appetite for it? Well, what we found in Birmingham was diaspora leaders, so people moving from other countries mm. to the UK to plant, particularly amongst their own people group who'd migrated here, that that need is somewhat similar. Often they come as individuals, they don't know the city, they want to connect with others in the city, they need the resources to help the support of local leaders who've been here a time to establish the, the church planting that they're doing. So that seems to be very similar, Birmingham and London. People were very, somewhat isolated, looking to connect. So we can meet and help and work with those leaders quite early on and have done. In fact, that's been the most encouraging and most fruitful part of what we've seen even in the two years or so that the London Project has been going. We're, we're working with something like 50 different diaspora churches from all parts of the world within the city. What is a bit different, I think, is when you start to work with sort of mainline denominations because often their headquarters are based in cities like London and the work here is some, is quite strong. So in other words, they can work within their own tribe and accomplish quite a lot without the need to come together because this is the big city. This is where everyone comes and this is where they're well-resourced and, and the, the training centres are and, and everything. So persuading busy networks, persuading those leaders to give some time to working to get to know, support and resource other networks within the city, that can be a challenge. Mm. And the challenge may not be a theological one, it may be a pragmatic one, which mm. is they're saying, hey, we're really pushing on with, with our church planning program in the city, we're busy, there's so much that we can do on our own, 
we're not sure we've got time or capacity to come together. So persuading them that as we look at the long game, there's enormous value in working with and through other networks takes a little bit of, of persuading. But I think we're, we're winning that. And we're winning it in part because people are seeing and experiencing the diversity of, of London, this sort of super diverse city. In fact, one author who wrote a book recently called Migrant City, his contention, his argument in the book is London is the most diverse city in the history of the world. Not just the most diverse city today, but ever. 300 languages spoken here, people from the whole world moving here. And even the mainline denominations recognise that's an, that's an enormous challenge. How do we reach the nations yeah. from London? And maybe they're saying, and they are beginning to say, we need to come together. We need to think about this collectively and work collaboratively. And the diaspora leaders need to meet the mainline leaders. And the London Project can facilitate some of that partnership and connection and collaboration because that's our main thing. That's what we're doing all of the time is looking to connect leaders across London to one another that we might do more together than, than on our own. And I think people are recognising the London Project is looking to serve in that way and seeing that this could be a, 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 a way forward for the church in London. Is there any difference in working with people who, whether in Birmingham or London, are local leaders who have come up in the city who are planting or, or pastoring in the city versus those who are coming in from somewhere else and planting or becoming involved with local work. Is there any difference in the receptivity? Do they bring different strengths to the process? Well, Brandon, let me tell you something about London briefly, which is something that I find hugely encouraging and exciting, is that God has been at work in this city in the last 20 years in remarkable ways. To the extent that the growth of the church is is outstripping the growth of the population as a whole. The church is growing faster than the city. So something now like 8.7% of Londoners are attending church once a month. And we haven't seen that for 100 years in London. We've gone through decline and through now largely migration growth within the city. In other words, God bringing believers, bringing Christians into the city, many of them from the African continent we've seen real new life and they have brought a vibrancy and uh, to to this to the church in the city and they have planted in large numbers these sort of my, um, diaspora churches in particular so we we see growth and we see opportunity and we see possibility one author describes london as the first desecularized city we've gone through secularization and come out the other side and what's happened in London, we believe and trust and pray, may happen in the other cities of Europe that have experienced this extraordinary secularization as God brings the nations um, into the city. So even the established mainline churches and planters and pastors are wrestling with all sorts of new people in their communities that speak a different language, that many of them are believers but have a different tradition and a different theology and so on, and everyone is wrestling with complexity. That's the new question, is the diversity leads to an increasing complexity, and our argument for, as the London Project is we need each other more than we've ever needed each other if we're going to address some of those challenges and those questions. 
And we sense leaders in the city recognizing that. Mm. Um, but a more traditional mainline church may say, we notice, for example, a Nigerian new fellowship that started nearby. We're not sure how to connect. We don't yeah. know how to have a conversation. If you can facilitate that for us, we'd love, we think, to meet and get to know them and see what we can learn. And that that is um, reciprocated by the by the Nigerian church that feels we don't know how to relate to the historic mainline traditions in the city, and the London Project says again, can we facilitate that? Can we serve the city by bringing you together? And then we trust and hope that friendships will develop and that new answers to the challenge of a global city like London can be met together by that peer to peer training and coaching and growth and understanding you've made um a sort of between the lines of our conversation a pragmatic argument for partnering that we can do more together than we can do on our own is there a biblical or theological case to make for that kind of collaboration that is somehow if you were to take away all the pragmatic benefits that there's still a compelling reason for us to to do this together rather than apart Great question, Brandon. Yes, I think is the is the answer. Um, so we all love John seventeen and, and Jesus' prayer uh, for the unity of the church. That he longs and prays and seeks the unity of the church. And I'm not sure as evangelicals we've been all that good at pursuing that unity or seeking to see that prayer answered in our own contexts and situations. So John seventeen is a great place to go that we may be one. But the question is, where do we find in the Bible uh, answers to this question of how do you relate to other believers who think differently from you on some quite important issues? And I've looked and wrestled with that question for probably the last year or so, and I've settled on Romans 14 and 15 as probably the most helpful single place to go because Paul in Romans chapter 1 addresses the church in Rome. So he sees this church as one church in Rome. By the time you get to chapter 16, it's quite clear that this church in Rome is made up of all sorts of house fellowships. So he talks about the church that meets here and the church that meets there and greets there and so on. So he's talking to one church, chapter 1. He's talking to many fellowships, chapter 16. And then in chapters 14 and 15, he addresses different, not individual believers, but I think different communities of believers who are part of the church in Rome, and he calls them the strong and the weak. And in those chapters, he wrestles with the question of what obligation do you as a group of believers have to another group of believers within the same city who know and love and honour Jesus? And perhaps the key text is found for us at the end of the argument in Romans 15 verse 6, where Paul simply says, accept one another as Christ has accepted you. So he says, look, people will come to differing views on secondary matters, the strong and the weak, differing over whether you have to observe particular holy days, what food you're permitted to eat as as a believer. Paul can say, I know where I stand on these issues. And he does at the beginning of chapter 15, he says, I consider myself to be the strong in this situation. But he says, I stand by the weak, 
the weak meaning people who have a more tender conscience on some secondaries, probably Jewish believers who would abstain from certain foods and want to still continue to keep certain holy days. And he says, I know where I stand in this debate, but what I want to see in the church in Rome is unity expressed through diversity. In other words, he doesn't say, I think you should all get together, have a big debate, settle a matter once and for all, and then we and then we can move on. He says, no, to the strong, you respect the conscience of the weak. And to the weak, you also honour your stronger brothers and sisters. So it's a unity and diversity model because he doesn't, he neither says you've got to all come to one view, nor does he say have nothing to do with each other, but rather he says it, accept one another, welcome, embrace and include one another to the degree that Christ has welcomed you, even as you respect as a matter of conscience the view of another believer or group of believers on a secondary issue. So I call it a unity and diversity model. And I think that's probably the single place in the New Testament where we find that most clearly expressed. Historically, when I'd preach a passage like Romans 14 and 15, I'd preach it about two individuals within the same church. One likes to have the drums in the the worship, the other doesn't. You know, that sort of idea, or one thinks you should never go to the cinema or drink alcohol or whatever it might be. But actually, when you look at what's going on in Romans 14 and 15, it's about different faith communities, Mm. the strong and and the weak within the city. Mm. And Paul does this quite extraordinary thing. He says, this side of heaven, there will be diversity in the church. Mm. And we welcome that and we accept that. And we work for our unity even through that diversity. So unity around the primary issues diversity around secondary issues seems to be a model that Paul says is is the way forward for the church within the city. We have this in our minds unity and uniformity model. I think we, that's our default. Yeah. So I will be united to those who think exactly as I think on all of the issues. In other words, people within my own tribe. What Paul says is no, you have an obligation to accept those who think differently from you on secondary issues. Yeah. You have that obligation you, you, to accept them as much as Christ has accepted you, which is yeah. basically with open arms. Yeah. And I think that's the challenge for us in the church is that we don't believe in unity through diversity. Um, and we struggle with that because it's messy. It's yeah. complex. It's not easy to decide quite who and to what extent you can work with someone who thinks differently from you. Yeah. So what's crucial is uni- unity in the gospel. That's a non-negotiable for Paul. We know what Paul has to say in all parts of the New Testament letters where people are denying Christ in one form or another. He says, have nothing to do with them. But where it's different on secondary matters, where you persuaded someone knows and loves Jesus, Paul says you have an obligation to that believer to love them as Christ has loved you. And I'm not sure we've really ever, in my lifetime, I've not seen that done and done well. If you were to close your eyes and imagine... Um, London, the the Christian community in London. Let's say in ten years, what do you what do you see? What do you hope and pray for for London? I'm not sure we'll get there in ten. <laughs> we would love to see individuals coming to faith in great number, and a city being impacted by those discipled Christians being salt and light throughout the city. So to see a city somewhat 
renewed, impacted, transformed in some sense by the power of the gospel, as it has been in London in previous generations. And we think of the Wilberforces and the Spurgeons and and this sort of yeah. and so on, and Lord Shaftesbury and and, and others. Um, but what I'd love to see in the next ten to twenty years is the continued growth of the church, growing at a faster rate than the population as a whole. If we could get to from eight point seven percent to ten percent, mm. we might reach what's sometimes called that tipping point, mm. where the church really starts to be noticed in the city, and 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 to grow. So maybe. From 8.7 to 10% within the next 20 years would be something that we would pray to happen. And we don't believe for a moment that the London Project could be responsible, in even in a human sense. Of course, it's God's God's work at the end of the day, but even in a human sense, we, we can't do that. We can't. But what we could play our small, spot, our small part in helping to see new churches planted, to see healthy gospel churches maturing, to see migrant churches going from, say, being uh, Nigerian churches in London to London churches mm. with Nigerians, helping those migrant churches to make the change that many of them want to make and yeah. recognise need to happen, and to see those Christians discipled so that they are salt and light in their communities, in their places of work, um, in matters of social renewal within the city and the creative arts and so on. So I'm not sure I've I've painted a little picture without giving you... <laughs> A clear answer to what <laughs> might be possible but it's a great time to be in a city like london and we thank god for what he's done um over these last 20 years and we'd love to see and pray that he would do more thank you so much for your time neil it's been a pleasure oh, absolute pleasure thank you brandon for more information about the london project visit thelondonproject.co.uk otherwise that's a wrap thank you for joining us How to Reach the West Again is a production of Redeemer City to City. This episode was produced, written, and hosted by Brandon O'Brien. Our associate producer is Braden Gregg. The interview was recorded on location in London by Westway Records and edited by Lee Jerkins. Redeemer City to City is a nonprofit organization co-founded by Tim Keller and supported by the generosity of people like you. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform, leave us a review, and consider making a gift to support the work at RedeemerCityToCity.com. 